Uh, I just want to get the obvious out of the way. For those of you that came to see Pastor Jordan preach today, I'm sorry to disappoint. Uh, Jordan was originally supposed to be preaching today, or originally scheduled to, but he had a surgery two days ago. So if you have surgery two days, you're not going to preach two days later. So the intern will be preaching today. Uh, So if you want to see Pastor Jordan, he will be back next week, so make sure you're back here next week. And for those of you that have heard Pastor Jordan's messages, uh, I'm sure that you have been touched by him and his words that he brought that God has been speaking through him. Uh, And so when the leadership was planning as to who was going to preach today, I'm pretty sure they were like, "Um, speaking instead of Pastor Jordan, I don't want to do that. Let's make the intern do it. He's had some experience with Herbster. Let's see if it pays off. So we'll see if it works out. Uh, And since this is probably one of the only times that I'm going to get to preach, I'm going to be combining a lot of my thoughts together. So be prepared to sit here for a couple hours. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We won't take that long. Uh, But we are going to go through a couple different passages today. So if you want to only open up to one passage in Scripture, we're going to be eventually going to John chapter 4. Uh, Pastor James has been leading us in a series on worship, and I think it's only fitting that the worship pastor would continue that series, so that's what we're going to do. So the word worship comes from the old English word worthship. So everybody say worthship three times. Yeah, it's super awkward. So as humans, we like things easy. We like things simple. We don't like things awkward. So as humans, we shortened it to worship. But that only English word tells exactly what it is. Worthship. We give something or someone worth. So when we gather as a church every Sunday, we are declaring that God is worthy. And what is he worthy of? He is worthy of our time. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our attention, et cetera, et cetera. So now if I come to you at some point and say, hey, can you lead worship on Sunday? What would you say? You are absolutely crazy. You must be going insane. Never in your dreams will I do such a thing. There might be a couple yeses. And then you might have the classic, I'll pray about it. And then never talk to me again. Some people are just not gifted to be up here on the stage leading songs, leading the singing. But did anyone's mind go to anything else when I asked that question, would you lead worship on Sunday? Did anybody's mind go to anything else other than being up on stage singing songs? You don't have to raise your hand. So it makes sense that your mind didn't go there because, you know, when the worship pastor, you, you see the worship pastor up here leading songs, and if he asks you to lead worship on Sunday, it makes sense that your mind doesn't go to anything else. But worship isn't defined as singing songs. So what is the definition of worship? So back in college, I took a class called Planning and Leading Worship. There were a whopping four students in this class. Uh, So it was a huge class. But we were each assigned three days throughout the semester to lead the class in worship for 15 minutes. So I, my first time naturally, as the worship arts major, going in for worship through song, basically, uh, led the class in worship through song for my first time. There was another student in the class. He didn't play any instruments, but he sang on the worship team. So when it was his turn to lead worship, he found three songs, he printed them out, he, or printed out the lyrics, 
passed them out to all of us, and we sang them a cappella. And if you ever try to sing an upbeat song without any music, specifically a Lincoln Brewster song, you know it does not go too well, or it might be a little awkward. So that student's definition of worship and my definition of worship were off. We weren't wrong to lead the class through worship, through song, but we weren't limited by it. Yeah, worship could also be praying. It could be meditating on scripture. It could be being out in nature, being amazed at God's creation, or anything of the sort. I love the Westminster Confession's definition of worship, where it says, to love God and enjoy him forever. To love God and enjoy him forever. Anything that you do that is loving to God is glorifying him, and in turn, you are worshiping him. So I want us to look at the different ways that worship is done in Scripture, first in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament, because there is a difference between the two. So starting with the Old Testament, and throughout that whole book of, well, the whole books of the New Te Old Testament, you can read about how there is offerings and sacrifices all throughout it, and the first of which starts in Genesis. So if we look at Genesis chapter 4 with the Cain and Abel account, Starting in verse 2, it talks about Eve gave birth to Cain, and then later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept the flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel brought an offering, or Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. So Cain worked the garden. Abel worked with the livestock, the animals. They both took from their respective areas and gave an offering to God, but only one was held with high regard. Why is that? Why is that the case? Is it because God looks with favor more on farm or shepherds than he does with farmers? No, that's not the case. If you look at how the author describes Abel's offering, where he says, Abel brought an offering, fat portions from, from the firstborn of his flock. So the fat portions back in that day, that was the thing to have. That was the good stuff. Some people are thinking the fat portions are the good stuff still today. Good for you. But Abel brought the best. He took the first from the firstborn, so he was provided, and he took from it and he took the best parts of it and gave it to God. The author doesn't describe how Cain, what Cain's offering was or how it was, but it just says he gave an offering. So due to the lack of description, I can assume, or I'm assuming, that his offering was lackluster at best. So he didn't give his best. Abel gave an offering of his best, and Cain gave just because that was the thing to do. He gave because Abel was doing it, and that's what everybody else was doing. He was going through the motions. His heart was not in the worship. And then throughout Exodus, you can read about how the Israelites fled Egypt, and then they were in the wilderness, and then they were, giving, they were given 613 laws by God. We'll go through them all. The first one is this. I'm just kidding. We won't go through them all. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, so they were given these 613 laws that they had to follow perfectly. But given their sinful nature, they were unable to do so. They could not keep the whole law perfectly. But God, being full of mercy, gave, provided a way for the Israelites to atone for their sin. And that went by, if the Israelites sacrificed a specific animal, God's wrath would go from on them, on the uh, Israelite, and go onto that animal. The animal would take the Israelites' place. And this was a symbol of God's justice and grace for the people. And then God gave the commandment about how this was to be done. But eventually, the Israelites started to lose sight of this. After Aaron, second Sam, or well, first Samuel, the best book out there, I'd say. Uh, Samuel in chapter two, he was just recently born. He was growing. He was maturing. And then the priest at that time in the temple was Eli. And we can read about his sons in First Samuel chapter two, verses twelve through seventeen. It says this: Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So, quick, brief history. When the Israelites entered the promised land that God gave to them, he split the land into... Well, he split the land up for the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel had 12 sons. Their descendants became their, uh, a tribe, a, 12 tribes, 12 sons, 12 tribes. God split the land for those 12, tri- 12 tribes. But uh, all, every tribe got a chunk of land except for one, which was the Levites. The Levites were chosen to be priests for God. So they did not get a piece of land to live on, but they were told they could live wherever they want, but they had to minister for the people. So the priests would be the one to, would be the ones to facilitate these sacrifices or these offerings that God commanded. And so how the practice of the day, as we see in 1 Samuel, was that the Israelite would bring their offering, assumably burn the fat portions, and then would boil the rest of the meat. And then the priests would come and take with a big fork, stab the meat, bring it up, Whatever falls off stays as part of the sacrifice or offering, and then whatever's left on there goes to the priests because the priests were not paid. So they get to take a portion of the meat as their provision, as so they can provide for themselves and for their families. So whatever's left on the fork, they get to take for themselves. Now Eli's sons, they skipped a couple steps. They did not wait, want to wait for the meat to be boiled or for the fat portions to be burned. They probably wanted the fat portions, because remember, the fat portions was the good stuff. That's what they wanted. So they skipped those steps, and they said, give it to me now. They did not care about how the practice 
of how the sacrifice or offerings process was to be done. But if you look throughout the Old Testament or throughout the book of Deuteronomy, how, how, how God commanded how this sacrifice offering process was to be done, the first practice that we read about in 1 Samuel wasn't right either. If you look in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 3 through 5, it says, This is the share due to the priests from the people who sacrifice a bull or a sheep, the shoulder, the internal organs, and the meat from the head. You are to give them the first fruits of your grain, new wine, and olive oil, and the first wool from the shearing of your sheep. For the Lord your God has chosen them and their descendants out of all your tribes to stand and minister to the Lord's name always. God never commanded uh, the priest to take a big fork, stab the meat, and whatever's left, you get to take. No, he, the, he already said, this, these are your provisions. These are the pieces of the body that you get to take. But the Israelites started changing things up. They started to lose focus. They started to lose sight of the purpose of what they were doing. So it started off with, let's sacrifice to God how God commanded and then it turned into, let's sacrifice to God because everybody else is doing it and let's change a few things. And yeah, because everybody's doing it, let's sacrifice to God. And then it morphed into, let's sacrifice to whatever. Let's sacrifice to false gods. Let's sacrifice to idols. Who cares? Let's just sacrifice. They lost sight of it. So you can think that you are worshiping God. Let's put this in our context. You can think you are worshiping God, but you might be slowly drifting away. So let me ask you this question. Why are you here today? Are you here to worship God? Are you here to give God praise? Or are you here because your parents brought you and every week you're told to come to church? Or are you here because this is just what you've done for every Sunday for a long time? Or are you here because your friends are here? Are you here because everybody else is doing it? Or are you here to worship God don't have the wrong reasons for why you were here, or you might be slowly drifting away. So the rest of the Old Testament, you can read about how the Israelites were doing all these sacrifices for the wrong reasons, whether that means they were going through, uh, going through the motions, just doing it because everybody else was doing it, trying, or they were trying to be impressive with how much they offered, or they were sacrificing the false gods. Whatever the case, they were doing it for, or many of them were doing it for the wrong reasons. But remember what these purposes of these offerings, sacrifices were. They were a symbol of God's grace and justice for the people. The Israelites lost sight of this, which led to God sending many prophets to try and set things straight. Micah has probably one of the most popular of which. In Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Is the Lord pleased with burnt offerings? Is that all that he desires? Is he satisfied with thousands of animal sacrifices or 10,000 rivers of fancy and expensive oil? Or since God likes firstborn, will he be happy with a firstborn child sacrifice? The answer to all that is no. 
the act itself, God does not care about, except for the firstborn child thing. That is just a straight-up no-no. But the act itself, God doesn't care about. He cares more about the heart of the worshiper than he does, or than he cares about what the worshiper does. Which leads us to verse 8 of Micah, chapter 6. It says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God desires more for us to act justly, love mercy, and to follow God. Now we want to go, or now I want to go to the New Testament, which, hint, hint, we are in the New Testament phase. And if you've been waiting patiently to open up to, or to be in chapter 4 of John, that's where we're going to be next. And to provide some context, this is about the wo- Jesus and the woman at the well. So Jesus is a Jew, the Samaritan woman is a Samaritan. Jews and Samaritans don't like each other, they butt heads. So Jesus, as a Jew, walks up to the Samaritan woman while this woman was drawing water from a well and says, hey, can you get me a drink of water? And after some pushback, Jesus says, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for water, and I would give you water that you'd never thirst again. This woman, obviously, wants this water. So she asks for the water. Jesus says, okay, go get me your husband. Oh, I don't have any husbands. I don't have a husband. You're right, you have five husbands. And the, one, the man that you are living with now is not your husband. So this woman, being in this awkward place, does not want to be in this awkward spot anymore, so she tries to change the conversation, try and change the topic. And we see that picked up in verse 19 through 24. It says this, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So the woman tries to take the heat off of her and place it onto Jesus. And she was saying, you Jews say that you have to worship in Jerusalem, in the temple. But us Samaritans, we worship on this mountain. And the mountain that she's talking about is called Mount Gerizim. Don't know if that's how the correct pronunciation goes, but that's how I'm going to roll with it. So Mount Gerizim. And on this mountain, long time ago, some of the Israelites were on this mountain and received a blessing from God. They built an altar, and then they worshipped God from, or at that place. So the Jews and Samaritans, remember, remember, they butt heads. They don't like each other. And the Jews worship in Jerusalem, a Jewish town. Samaritans, not welcomed by the Jews to go worship there, said, okay, where are we going to worship? Let's build a mount, or let's build a temple here on the mountain where our ancestors once worshipped. Maybe we'll even receive a blessing from God because of it. Uh, And then Jesus continues on this conversation. He says, okay, you change the topic, whatever, I can make this into a teaching point. And he's talking about uh, that there is a time that is coming that you won't have to worship in Jerusalem. And there is a time that is coming that you don't have to worship on the mountain. There's a time of coming that you don't have to worship in either of those places. And he continues in verse 23, where he says, Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. 
The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For this is the kind of worship that the Father seeks. This is the kind of worship that the Father desires. How do you worship in spirit and truth? That is the question. So I want to break it down for you. I want to break up, or we'll start with spirit, and we'll break it up into three things. First off, in verse 24, Jesus says that God is spirit. God is not made up of physical matter, so our worship should not be confined to an image or to a certain place. When Jesus died, the veil was torn into two. This veil that stood in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was, where only one person was allowed to go a year, and that veil separated that and where all the Israelites could go. When Jesus died, God ripped that veil into two, saying, I want everyone into my presence. There is not a certain place that you have to go to worship. You can worship me wherever. God is spirit. Second thing, we all have a spirit. Each of us has a spirit. From my understanding, this is also called a soul. So the spirit, our spirit, is the deep and unseen parts of a human being, our emotions, our thoughts. Our spirit is also our private and personal part of who we are. To worship God with our spirit is to take our emotions, our feelings, our thoughts, our will, share them with God, and have an intimate and personal relationship with him. So to worship God with our spirit is to worship him with our whole being. To worship God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, and with our strength. And then lastly is the Holy Spirit. When we accept Jesus for what he's done and his gift of the Holy Spirit, we receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is sent. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to guide and to teach in our worship, the Holy Spirit brings us focus and purpose, a reason for our worship. But there is no reason to our worship without the truth. And this is the truth of who God is and what he has done. For example, for every song that we sing, there is truth about God spoken in each song. So when I was working at camp over the summer, we sing this song a lot called My Feet Are on the Rock. And if you ever heard the song, it's by I Am They, and it's a real toe tapper, also known as You Can Dance to This Song. It is acceptable. So we sang this song a couple times already throughout our first week of camp. And out of the corner of my eye, I can see a couple cabins jumping, jumping to the song. And when you look at it broadly, there's no problem with this. The kids, they're getting into the music. They're having a good time. They're there to have fun, and they're having fun. But I look at things a little differently. And if you've never heard this song before, My Feet Are on the Rock is about no matter what happens in our life, the storms can come, the wind can knock us over, we can be on the edge without, with barely holding on to hope, but it doesn't matter because my feet are firmly on the rock. Our feet are firmly on Jesus Christ as our firm foundation. And as we're singing this song, and I see those cabins jumping, all I'm thinking about is if we're singing this song about Jesus being our rock, and we're standing firm on this rock, why are we putting our feet in the air? It's more like you're singing, I'm jumping off the rock, when they're doing that. And this made me concerned that people are more focused on too much 
on the music than they are on the words of the song. But because I do see the humor of the situation, I would define a couple other songs that find, or that do the exact, or do something similar to it. So take the song, Build My Life. We sang this song last week. Some people like to worship with their eyes closed. It makes them feel connected to God. So imagine singing, Build My Life, with, my eye, or with your eyes closed. Holy, there is no one like you. There is none beside you. Open up my eyes in wonder. Open up my eyes in wonder. Ever think about that? Or take the song, The Stand. We sang this song a couple weeks ago. And I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. And I'll stand my soul, Lord, to you surrendered all I am is yours. Imagine seeing that song sitting down. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it happens. And this is the downside of songs. Sometimes the focus is all on the music, and the words of the song are just the melody, another melody to the music. While I do love music and listen to some songs solely based on the music, the words are the most important part of the song. And if we're too focused on the music rather than on the words and what they're saying, then the purpose of what we're doing here on Sunday morning with the band being up here leading us in songs is pointless if we don't focus on the words. Every song, like I said, every song has something true to say about God. We sang this song today, Great Are You, Lord. You give hope. Wow, I started at the beginning. You give life. You are love. You are light in the darkness. You give hope. You restore every heart that is broken. But as you sing this song, how can you worship God if you don't believe that he gives life or you don't believe that he is love or that he brings light to the darkness or you don't believe that he gives hope or that he restores the brokenhearted? The words that we sing have meaning and us believing them is most important to God. Let me say that again. The words that we sing have meaning, but us believing them are most important to God. But if you're just standing there as you sing, and you read the words on the screen that are up there, and you feel nothing, there is no connection to God, there is nothing. Isn't that the same thing that the Israelites were going through when they were going through the motions and giving their worship? They are just worshiping because that's what everybody else is doing. And when you stand there reading the words on the screen, and not really connecting much, that's just the same thing of going through the motions in your worship. God didn't delight in, their wor- in the Israelites' worship of them going through the motions. God's not going to delight in our worship if we're going through the motions. And I'm guilty of this too. There's been many times throughout my worship leading career or whatever that I would be up here or up somewhere on stage and I'd be leading the song, I'd be playing the guitar, I'd have the whole all the chords memorized, I have all the lyrics memorized, and then while leading the song, in the middle of it, I just zone out. The song would still go, I would still be singing, but I would not be thinking anything about the song. God did not delight in that worship. And don't take anything that I say today that says, I want you to sing, I want you to raise your hands when you worship. Remember what I said, God cares more about the heart of the worshiper than he does about what the worshiper does. We are gathered here to worship God, 
and to give him praise. We're not here to just sing songs. So the shift between the Old Testament and the New Testament worship came with Christ's crucifixion. The Old Testament Israelites had to sacrifice animals to atone for their sin. But as soon as they leave and as soon as they sin again, another sacrifice needs to be made to atone for that sin they committed. But now, Jesus sent, or God sent his only son in Jesus to live the perfect life. And when Jesus gave up his son to be crucified, he became the ultimate and perfect sin. Wow, ultimate, perfect sacrifice. Correction. All of God's wrath was put onto Jesus, from us onto Jesus as he died. All we have to do is ask God to forgive us. Forgive us of our sins. And that wrath would go onto Jesus instead. And Jesus gave up his life as a way for you to be saved and for you to have a relationship with him. Will you accept that relationship? When God does something truly amazing and something that only he can do, he deserves our worship. We couldn't save ourselves. Only God could find a way to do that. And he did that. He deserves our worship. So let's give him our worship. And not worship that just goes through the motions. Worship just because everybody else is doing it. But worship God with something that he will delight in. Would you pray with me? God, we just quiet our hearts before you. We just thank you for all the ways that you have moved in our lives. With the biggest thing being you sending your only son and Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And with that came many other things, like you tearing the veil, saying, I want everyone in my presence. So God, that's what we want. We want to be in your presence. We want to feel your spirit move in our hearts. So God, as we sing these songs, as we worship you, let us remember that it's all about you. Every word that we sing, every word that we speak should be glorifying to you. So God, help us to focus in, help us to remember why we do what we do. And if there's something wrong that you don't like in our hearts, Prune it out. We don't want it there. So God, may you ultimately be glorified. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.